welcome to another episode with a visionary. Today we have Chris Markey with us. Chris is a professor at Cambridge Judge Business School, where I also received my PhD several years ago. And I'm not biased when I say this, but it is the best business school in the world. Previous to Cambridge, Chris was at Harvard and Cornell teaching sustainable global enterprise. And prior to his incredibly impressive academic career, he was a vice president and technology manager at JP Morgan. Chris has recently written a book looking at B Corp movement and why socially and environmentally responsible companies are vital to everyone's future. Chris, thank you again for your willingness to be on the podcast. I'm very, very honored. So if we can get started, what is a B Corp? Yeah. Sure. So a B Corp is a company that has uh, is certified for its social and environmental performance. So to become a B Corp, you know, there's many certifications, things like fair trade or organic or lead certified buildings. These are sort of certifications of like certain products or services, but a B Corp is a company that has been certified. So to become a B Corp, companies have to go through an assessment process of their basic ESG, environmental social governance, performance, if they are able to get above a certain level and are verified by B Lab, the NGO that certifies them, they can become a B Corp. So how does one measure sustainability? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. Really tough uh, thing to say. I mean, there's there's a wide variety of ways one one can think about sustainability. So I think just to sort of bound ourselves a little little bit, you know, I think we'll want to think about companies um, uh, in particular, and then also the different dimensions. I think the ESG framework is a useful way to think about it. So environment, social, and governance. You know, frequently sustainability in the past has been really focused a lot on environmental sustainability. And I think that ends up resulting in, you know, maybe, you know, a variety of different social aspects, you know, be it sort of benefits, you know, ways of combating inequality with equal pay, diversity measures, equity measures might get not as emphasized. So I do think it's important to actually think about that S dimension uh, as well. I see. You know, I recently was writing about that myself because with fashion companies, especially with the war in Ukraine and whether they should remain in Russia and how that right. into the S dimension of ESG, because when I was speaking to the journalist and they've asked me this question, I said, my reaction and my comment was, how can a company call themselves sustainable and remain in Russia when, right. you know, when innocent people are being killed and, you know, what's your opinion about that? I mean, I really agree. I mean, I think that um, in some ways, even before like thinking about ESG, um, you know, you have to think about sort of in some ways the ethics and the values of a company. And I think it's that these are very tied to the ethics and values of the company. And yeah, I mean, if it's, supporting a aggressive uh, uh, country by having your stores in there you know, in that country. I mean, I think that's, you know, where, I mean, I know a lot of businesses have pulled out because of that, of that reason, you know, maybe they did a lot of it out of peer pressure or whatever, maybe it wasn't their own personal ethics, but I do think that I, I agree with you hundred percent that 
actually where people do business, um, how they do business, you know, is an important aspect of this. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the media as well about, you know, sort of in China and companies operating in the province of Xinjiang, uh, you know, where there's this sort of widespread imprisonment uh, people and, you know, everything from, you know, many brands have gotten in trouble for speaking out about it. But then, you know, companies like Tesla have actually been very proactive in opening offices there in a way to support the Chinese government, no doubt, and sort of, you know, get their, you know, sort of get benefits in some other, in some other way, I'm not sure what, but I do think that, you know, how and where to operate is an important part of the sort of values and ethics of a company. This is an interesting one because in a way I've been also receiving, you know, I, I'm hearing these comments where, especially in the fashion industry, they say, well, I'm not going to name the, the name of the brands or the CEOs, sure. but there has been some hesitation whether to leave Russia. And, you know, if you look at right. our industry, Russia is not a very big market, but right. you have China that is an incredibly important market. So, you know, they decide to invade Taiwan. What happens right. then? What will the fashion and luxury brands reaction be? Yeah. <laughs> That would be very interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, let's hope that China doesn't invade Taiwan. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's really easy to be ethical when the price is low. You know, the example in China of this is, you know, Google about 10 years ago made a big, you know, PR splash about how, you know, they were moving out of China because there was censorship, because you know, the Chinese government was hacking Gmail uh, accounts. But actually, you know, Google's market share had been declining very rapidly based because a, a search, a Chinese based search engine had been developed. They weren't making any money. And so people said, well, basically, probably they were going to leave anyways. And like, you know, they just got this PR benefit by saying they were leaving because, because of this. So I do, I do think you're exactly right. You know, it's probably, it's a lot easier to leave Russia for these luxury companies than, than China. And so, yeah, the, but the real test would be whether it actually they're willing to do it in spite of it hurting their bottom line. Exactly, exactly. It would be interesting to see. And speaking of the war in Ukraine and Russia, I was just wondering, do you think the war in Ukraine and you, the war between Ukraine and Russia, do you think this is going to hinder the company's effort to become more sustainable or accelerate it? Yeah, good question. I haven't thought a lot about that. I don't think, I don't think it'll hinder it, I don't think. Um, I mean, I'm wondering if you know, it may, on the margins, accelerate it just because it will make more salient these ethical judgments that businesses have to make. Yeah, maybe it will, it will on the margins um, and then make them think about places like Xinjiang and other places where, um, yeah. you know, whether, whether, you know, they operate there or not, there's a lot more variation on it, but it is, a, it is potentially a sort of moral or ethical issue. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because, you know, when we think about sustainability, as we just said, everyone thinks about it as having these ethical, your supply chain matters, how you source your product matters. But I think the S part is something that, you know, almost is not that talked about, but I think it's becoming more 
prevalent and becoming much more important as consumers, in my opinion, are getting much more sophisticated. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, consuming this is where, you know, consumers are really the key people to um, that, that need to hold companies accountable for this. And I think, uh, you know, definitely seen this some in the China supply chain with human rights that some, yeah. you know, people are, but it's, um, yeah, there's a lot more work to be done in that, certainly. And what about legislation, speaking of China, and I know the Uyghur community, there is some legislation right now that we are seeing, particularly in U.S., regarding yes. the supply chain. Yes. Yeah, it's really very interesting. And the EU is also has some um, stuff as well. So my understanding, so, so in the U.S., there's something I think of the act, is, which is passed, the U.S. Congress now, is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Yes. And it would require U.S. companies to basically prove that they do not have any product or any sort of materials from Xinjiang in their products. This is a huge challenge. I mean, you can imagine, you know, Xinjiang has a lot of gas resources, for instance. And so, you know, what if somehow the power of your facility is powered by gas from Xinjiang as an example um, of something? Uh, and how actually the U.S. Customs will assess this is still undetermined yet. They're still sort of figuring it out. So it's, so it's very, very complicated. Uh, and then to prove that you actually don't have any Xinjiang production is a challenge, um, I think, you know, because it's hard to prove a negative. The European, which I don't think has gone through yet, but I've just read a little bit about what's being discussed. So it actually, I think, focuses much more on the forced labor part. So whereas the US one, it's focused on this region, mm -hmm. the European is focused on the practice, which I think is actually a much more robust way to do it because there could be forced, there's forced labor all over the world. I mean, it's in, you know, in many different supply chains, you know, sort of chocolate is a famous example, um, you know, where there's all kinds of sort of slavery and child labor that, that exists. So I think actually having a sort of anti-forced labor law is makes a lot more sense, to be honest, than having an anti-Xinjiang law. Uh, and I think also from what I understand, the EU provisions, it wasn't like proving a negative, but it was, there was some, uh, I'm not sure, reporting mechanism. I'm not sure exactly the details of it, but many times people say to me, like, why do you study B Corps? This is just a voluntary thing and businesses are, you know, they're not going to, you know, they're just going to do the minimum. And I think some businesses are doing really well, but I think at the end of the day, having policy and laws to address these ESG issues is the far more robust and strong way to go. And of course, I mean, around human rights, like forced labor, you know, there should be laws that, that actually prevent that. But in many cases, you know, there's not going to be laws to prevent that. Um, you know, in the U.S., I think the only reason why people to, and it's sad, it's sad, but I think the only reason why U.S. policymakers care about Xinjiang is that it plays, it's an anti-China message that plays well among the populace. I think if it was some region in India or, you know, I don't think the U.S. would care, um, to be honest. So I think this is an example of where, I mean, I do think having a policy intervention is, is better than having some voluntary certification, but I think so many places that's not going to, the policy is not going to happen. So I think that actually having, you know, the, the certification, B Corp certification makes a lot of sense. Speaking of B Corp, 
I know there is different certification bodies. There is positive right. luxury. With my own company, I just obtained the positive luxury certification. And oh, great. It, it wasn't easy. It took me eight months. And that's like the fastest. And <laughs> I'm still waiting wow. just to hear from B Corp. I've applied, but, uh, you right. know, not even, it hasn't been one year, but it has been about yeah. eight, nine months. And I haven't yet heard back. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> I've been hearing this from a lot of people. I mean, it sort of is the, you know, the pandemic, I think, was exactly the opposite of what they projected um, to happen. So they actually, the pandemic hit and they were very careful about their staffing, you know, maybe even sort of, you know, we furloughed some people. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Because they thought like, okay, you know, this is a pandemic, you know, people are going to be focusing on, you know, living, not getting certified as a B Corp. And it turns out the exact opposite happened yeah. uh, within like, you know, the, the one year, something like over 3000 new companies applied. And I think the, the highest number previously before annually was like a thousand. Wow. So, so they've been hugely backlogged because actually of all of these companies now going through it in the pandemic, uh, which is sort of interesting in and of itself. Absolutely. So to give an example of my own company, and I know that our listeners are also fashion entrepreneurs and people who yeah. have their own brands as well. So I, when I started with my company about 20 years ago, the principles of it are very much about ESG and sustainability. Right. But I never advertised or talked about it because for us, it was just how you do business. It was just like, that's how business should be done. And then as sustainability becomes a lot more important and people start to value it, of course, I realized I need to communicate that much more. And once again, like you can call yourself sustainable, but if you go through the certification process, well, you legitimize it, first of all. Second of all, you get to learn about your company in a ways that you see through somebody else's eyes, you understand where your weaknesses are, where your strengths are. And from that standpoint of view, it's very, very interesting. But for our listeners who have much smaller brands, and I know that this is not a cheap, it's not cheap to get the, the certification and it takes right. a long time. What would your advice be for someone who doesn't have the budget to go through the sustainability certification or even to create a sustainable company? I guess I'm asking you two questions. Like, can yeah. you be sustainable on a, a smaller budget? And do you, do you need the sustainability certification? So I think that, the, you know, the, uh, I just I'll talk about the B Corp um, one in particular. So actually all of the tools that they you would use to be certified are open source and free for anyone to use. So you can actually get the benefit of them without actually having to pay the certification. Um, now, you mentioned also the time involved, and I think that is not inconsequential. I know it's it's tough, but I mean, I can't think of anyone who said the, said the opposite of this. You know, so many of the entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders that I talked to said that actually they ended up learning so much from the certification that it's actually like sort of a best practice guide yes. of how to manage your company. And so 
you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, if you're thinking about like how to set up, how to set up your company, you know, this provides some, sort of a good guidebook, so to speak, of actually what good management practices is, you know, the, the book um, that I wrote on this recently is called Better Business. And the reason why I titled it Better Business is that, you know, so many of the people that I talked to, you know, interviewed said, you know, we got into this because we are interested in the social mission, we're interested in our sustainability and being held accountable for that because it was an important part of our organization. But we came out of it actually a better business, you know, better business overall. So anyways, it's, uh, I think it's, so I think that it makes sense to do it. Well, let's talk about your book. Sure. What is my, the my book of your book? Yes. My book is, is, so it's called Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Uh, I just I just joined a class at the University of Texas a couple of days ago, and the professor you know invited me, and I think they read something, and he was talking to me. He said, "That's remaking capitalism. That is a really bold claim. How can B Corps remake capitalism?" And you know, in the argument of my book is not that it's actually B Corps per se, but actually all of the different tools and processes that have been created through this movement that not just B Corps use, but all companies can use. So ESG, measurement, management, reporting tools, governance tools or, and, and methods around benefit corporation, a new type of company where you know, the sort of legal foundation is based on stakeholders, not just shareholders. So I think it's, you know, the idea is that, you know, as business is transforming itself to be more stakeholder focused, more ESG focused, um, actually having the tools and processes to actually go about making that change mm -hmm. is, is, is hard to find. And these actually pro provide a lot of them to do that. So, you know, a lot of companies get caught up for greenwashing. Uh, and I don't think they necessarily started off saying, okay, we're going to mislead the public. I think maybe when they announce things, they want to do it, but it just, it's actually hard to do. And the reason why I find the B Corp model powerful is that it provides a lot of tools for all companies to become better in ESG factors. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you. Hey, it's my, my pleasure, Naren. Great to hear about the work that you're doing. I mean, I think that, you know, I know you're in the fashion industry and I think that's a real frontier area for this. And I think that you'll be, definitely be helping shape a lot of that conversation. You know, I mean, I've been reading a lot that a lot of fashion houses now are using like non-animal leathers. Yes. Uh, that's been a big, uh, big push. Chloe, uh, the, you know, recently certified as a B Corp, I'm actually going to be talking to their CEO uh, in the next month, probably write an article about them for, for Forbes, which is really exciting. And there's a lot of smaller brands. There's a shoe startup um, where I've talked to the founder a number of times where. Who is the, what is the brand? So there's one like Predafore is is oh. one of the shoe brands. Uh, they make in, in Italy handmade from vegan uh, leathers. And then another is Area, A-E-R-A, -E which- I, um, I know Tina. Tina yes, Tina, Tina, right. Yeah. Yes, I interviewed her on the podcast. Yeah, really, I actually visited. It was one of the first, it was one of my first sort of pre post, sort of post-COVID interviews. I actually visited- uh, she uh, co-founded a, a pop-up store in New York City. Yes. And I visited there and saw the amazing sustainable brands that they had, including uh, her shoe line. And so, so, you know, it was really amazing to be able to see that in person because um, 
yeah, I mean, you, you walk into that store and it is beautiful fashion, but it also is sustainable. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's uh, you know, and I think more people, if more leaders of fashion houses can understand this, the better, because there's still, I mean, even though there's a lot of movement in this area, and I know, I mean, I'm just reading Caring, I think has some, I don't know what it is, what program it is around carbon neutrality. I mean, they're, so they're thinking about it, but but I think, you know, there's a lot more strategic thought that can be done, um, you know, so anyways, no, it's I exciting that you're working in it. With COVID, I think especially it's interesting that uh, B Corp thought people are not going to be interested in getting certified, but I would say with <laughs> COVID accelerated fashion brands, because in our industry, we were talking about sustainability and that it's important, but I feel it was uh, still kind of on the surface level. But when yeah. COVID hit, it really created this urgency for brands to do it as soon as possible. And it's very interesting to hear you say that you, you come out of it as a better business because once you go through the sustainability certification, it almost like brings it all together. And you right. start to eat things that you didn't, you weren't aware of before, uh, almost like pushes you to do better even if you are going through and some companies i consulted with them as well they started the sustainability certification that's a bit ironic but in a way because everyone else was doing it right and once they went through the sustainability certification they ended up at the end of it becoming very serious about their supply chain how they uh-huh. were sourcing, how they were talking to consumers. And you are absolutely right. They became a better business as a result of it. So yeah. it, it is interesting. And I think uh, what I'm seeing now with Ukraine and Russia, like the dependency on fossil fuels and how even countries are being woken up to this reality that right. to me, the war is also about climate change. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, yeah. And just like companies are also becoming aware of this urgent need to switch to renewable energy, so are the fashion brands as well. I I know Caring, they've signed with this uh, renewable energy and renewable electricity, RE100. I don't know if... Yes, right. That might have been what I read about. I remember seeing something from them. Um, Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it is interesting. And I think we are going to see a lot more emphasis on this in the future, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, like you mentioned, I mean, even though they might have gotten into it just because their peers are doing it, I'm maybe not caring, but maybe LVMH will or Richmond will or whomever. Uh, but, you know, it ends up creating a race to the top in, in some ways where it makes companies all become better the more and more people that do it, so. I agree. I agree. And that's what I'm seeing in my own practice as well, where something that starts like a PR exercise or, you know, I don't want to call it greenwashing, but something that starts off for marketing or PR reasons or because someone else is doing it, everyone else is doing it. It it just forces you to do better. So thank you, Chris.